Nehemiah is the story of God keeping his promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through his people for their flourishing both spiritually through ordering their lives around his word and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program, and the dependence of God's people in His power to effect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through His church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people, so that now, through His continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and His world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city. Uh, try and switch gears a little bit. Believe it or not, Holy Cross, we are more than halfway done with this series in Nehemiah. And, and what we've been looking at this, uh, or why we've been looking at this book at this point in our church's life is because it, it details the renewal of a city, which is uh, really why our church exists. We, we, uh, you know, our, our vision as a church is to see the multiplication of, of disciples and congregations all, for the, all seeking the flourishing of their community. So as we've been looking at this book, we've been asking the question, what will it look like to see Stanton transformed by the gospel? And churches will tend to, uh, and all churches of all stripes, right? They're going to tend to kind of uh, see the problem, uh, the problems of the world in either individual categories or systemic ones, right? The, the problems are, are either in terms of broken people or broken systems, Nehemiah, however, like the entire Bible, pushes against that. It says that, that the issues are both individual, that, that there are individual problems. We are broken people, uh, but also with systems and structures. And so if that is the case, then the solutions must be as well. And this week we begin to see a transition from renewing the structures of a city to renewing the people because our problem is so much deeper than structures. So if you have your place in Nehemiah chapter 6, our habit here, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, I'm going to be reading verses uh, 10 through 19. This is God's word to us, friends. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Metabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a, such, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted me to be afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound to him by oath, because he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, 
And his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, as his wife. And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, right now we do, uh, certainly we, we, have, we have things to pray for in terms of what we're about to do. But right now, again, we just want to lift up that little boy to you. Pray that you would heal him. Be with Tim and with Sarah, his parents. as they are. I know they are just terrified right now. Uh, bring them the peace that can only come through the presence of Christ by his spirit. And heal that little boy. Bring him flourishing. For when you do it, we're going to give you praise and give you the glory because you are the great physician and all life is in your hands. And now, Lord, as we turn to this passage, we just ask that you would uh, apply the gospel to our hearts, that you would soften our hearts to hear from you, that we would receive these things with joy and, and might be changed by them. Uh, God, you promised to change us by your word, and, and so we pray that we would be changed in a good way, that our hearts would be softened, and that you would, you would make, uh, make all things new, even in us. We ask that you'd let Christ and his work come to the fore, and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. You alone hold the words of eternal life, and so we offer these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I will never forget watching uh, my first episode of 24. Uh, Maddie had just been born, so that, that dates it a little bit. My wife and I had just had, had uh, heard about this show, and so a friend of ours had, and we're, at this point we're three seasons in, right? So a friend of ours had some of the seasons let us borrow one, and we binge-watched season three first. I know, you're not supposed to do that, but we binge-watched season three uh, while, you know, uh, dealing with first-time parent stuff and being up and all that craziness that goes with that. Um, and in that season, some of you will know this because you're familiar with the show, and that season was this hint of something that had happened a couple seasons before that they just keep talking about. This is something big, this big betrayal that had happened that, that had kind of changed Jack's life forever. But you, it's just hinted at because, of course, if you're a sane person, you watch from the beginning of the show and not jump into the middle of season three. But then, uh, you know, in the middle of the, of the season, we finally see what happened, because if you had been watching previously, you would have known that at the end of season one, Jack's, one of Jack's closest friends, and an agent alongside him in CTU, Nina, betrayed him, become a traitor, killed Jack's wife. Uh, but for my wife and I, as we were watching, we didn't know this until Nina appeared. The, the power of that kind of twist, as it happened uh, for the same people who watched it from the beginning, is, is that Nina was one of the good guys, right? That she at least appeared to be. But what she looked like on the outside wasn't really indicative of who she was. It was just existing in a system. So Jack found that the worst kind of opposition is that which comes not from enemies out there, but those inside. And just being part of a group isn't enough, you see. It's, it's really ultimately about where our loyalties are. And that's really what this passage is about as well. And it strikes at our assumptions about life in many ways. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break this up into three little points for us to look at. We're going to look at a great reversal. We're going to look at a stunning reminder. And then we're going to look at a clear need. And there's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful, right? Uh, a, a great reversal, a stunning reminder, and a clear need. 
Okay, let's start with the great reversal. Now, I, I've kind of jumbled the passage up a little bit. Some of you, you know, if you've been here, you know that I don't really like to do that. But, but I wanted to break this up simply to help us grasp this middle section. Because you see, if you've been following in this series, or maybe just reading along, um, you'll notice something huge has happened. But it isn't given the kind of press in this passage that you would expect. It's kind of set offhand. Right there in the middle. Right there in verse 15. Here in these two verses, we see a great reversal from the beginning of the book. Okay, first we see that something has gone from broken to restored. Look at verse 15. He says, so the wall was finished on the, on the, on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Now, think back for a second, if, if you can. Remember what it was that got Nehemiah's attention in the first place. He's, he's in the posh palace of Persia. Say that 12 times fast. He's, he's in the, the palace of Persia, and he's, he's uh, the cupbearer to the king. And what had gotten his attention and got him out of there was a report of two things. Now, don't turn there, but in chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. The remnant there, that's the Jews in Jerusalem, the remnant there is in trouble and in great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So here we are five chapters later. What we're told is 52 days from the beginning of the construction... And the wall is finished. This is huge. This is half of why Nehemiah went in the first place, right? This is is a big deal. The wall is finished. Now, now there are those who are going to argue with the time span, 52 days, right? That's like a month and a half. How do you reconstruct a wall around a city in 52 days? But between both what is said here and what what we hear reports of, even in the same passage of what Israel's enemies thought of this, Both of those things speak to the fact that, though unusual, this is probably what took place. Now, let's remember why this is a big deal. Because in in the ancient world, a city with no walls is is not a city at all. A city with no walls is a city with no security, no economy, no government. It is an urban desert. It It is a place where people cannot possibly flourish. But here, we're told, in passing, the walls are up. The gates are rehung. Everything is fixed. Life can return to the city. But that's not all. Look down at verse 16. Because it's not just about uh, a reversal of broken to restored. We're now, we, also, we also see this change from shame to awe. In verse 16 he says this, And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Remember the report again. The people, that is the Jews that live in Jerusalem, are in trouble they're in trouble. And great shame. Here, though, something else is going on. It's not the Jews that are in trouble. It's the enemies, the nations surrounding Israel that are suddenly afraid. It's, it's their esteem of themselves that's being lowered. Right? God has brought about a great reversal, at least in part. Because you notice what isn't said? What's not said there? You know, we, we have every aspect covered. The walls are back. The Jews aren't in trouble anymore. And, and in more, the, in, the enemies of their enemies are afraid. But there's no reversal of their shame. None. The only thing that we see now is that some others have a hit to their esteem. But you see, that's because the basis of their shame wasn't just in the broken walls. That was a symptom. That was a sign. But there are problems still. That are going on with the people as the rest of this passage helps us see. 
So let's now look at that. We're going to look at that stunning reminder that things aren't all better. First with false prophets. Look down at verses 10 to 14. Here's what's going on. There's this prophet named Shemaiah. Now, when you think of prophets, I know most of us, when we think of prophets, we think of fortune tellers, right? That's not what prophets were in the Old Testament. Prophets were, uh, first and foremost, did they speak the word of God? Yes, they did. But first and foremost, they were kind of like the... the um, they're like the little gadflies. They, they, they are poking at, at the, uh, the, the kings, the, the governors, things like that, to, re- to remember God, to remember his covenant, to remember what God has said, and to not be stuck in the status quo, to not get stuck with their own power, to not be obsessed with these things. And so this is who Shemaiah is. And so he probably calls on Nehemiah to come to his house. Now, we're we're told he's confined to his house. We're not entirely certain why. A lot of scholars will think that it's because it's ceremonial in nature. It's not like house arrest. It's like, uh, for some reason, he's just got to stay there, um, can't get out into the community. But in other words, what, what that means is that something has made him ritually unclean. In the Old Testament, that was common. That would happen to every person. You couldn't be a human and not, not at some point in your life have this ritual uncleanness that meant that you, for a period, were outside of the community and then, but would be brought back into it. It was this periodic alienation and restoration that went on in the Old Testament that was meant to point that not all is right with you and me. Something has to be fixed. Shemaiah, when, when Nehemiah comes over, gives him something that's constructed as a prophetic oracle, which is almost impossible to see in our English translations, but it's very poetic. If you were, if you were reading in the original, it would look very poetic, um, But in the original, this is just a poetic, prophetic oracle. And the oracle that he's saying is that Nehemiah is going to be murdered. In fact, tonight, this very night, they are going to come and they are going to kill you. Bad news, right? And the suggestion by Shemaiah is to flee to the temple and shut the door. Which sounds kind of benign to us, right? Like when I first read this, it kind of had, I had visions of Quasimodo yelling out in the middle of the church, sanctuary! Like that's the kind of thing that we get, but that's because we have very little connection to this notion of temple. Two things about the temple that are important here. The first is that in the Old Testament, the temple, God's temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. It's the place where God's presence dwells in a special way. And I know that we're all like, if you raise in church, you're like, isn't God everywhere? Yes, God is everywhere. People in the Old Testament believe God is everywhere. But in a very special way, he was present there. And so because of that, he sets very firm standards on who can and can't go in. That's the first thing. The second thing has to do with the temple is that the temple is always at the center of this matrix of Jewish hopes. You see... When, when Israel went into exile and, and Babylon had carried them off into exile because of their sin, God had told them, I'm not done with you guys. That things are actually going to get better. And when they do, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to raise up a son of David, a Messiah, a king who will come and he's going to restore the temple and he's going to cast off the yoke of the, the Gentile nations, the pagan nations around you that are ruling over you. And he's going to cast all those off. And all of it is centered on the temple. The coming Jewish Messiah, the downfall of the non-Jewish empires, all of these things were linked to the temple. So Nehemiah going to the temple would be a big deal. But you see, Nehemiah sniffs this out. Look there in verse 11. He's like, I can't go in there. And then he says that the reason for that is because he can, he can tell that this dude wasn't sent by God. He's sent by Tobiah and Sinbalat. And 
if you haven't been here, Tobiah and Sinballat are the chief enemies, the guys that are trying to get all this that's going on in Jerusalem to stop. Here's why he could sniff that out. Right above this, in verses 6 to 7, we're told that Sanballat, who's kind of a governor in the northern, north of where, where uh, Nehemiah is, that Sanballat was, had prepared a letter to send to the king of Persia that basically said this. They're fixing the city because he's about to declare himself king. And they're going to rebel against you. And, and Sanballat is threatening Nehemiah, saying, I'm going to send this. If you don't come and see me, and Nehemiah says, no, I I ain't coming to see you. Now, as it stands, all things being equal, Nehemiah would have a very easy time going, bro, listen, that that, that just ain't happening, right? I mean, he's trusted by the king of Persia. He was his cupbearer. He was the one who made sure he didn't get poisoned. Like, they they, they, they get each other. But as it stands, that would be easy to refute. But if it could also be said... Yeah, he's going to rebel. He's been hanging out at the temple with a prophet. Prophets crown kings. All of a sudden, this becomes very difficult. But secondly, Nehemiah sniffs this out because going into the temple is against God's word. That's why he calls it sin. Okay, In Numbers, uh, which is one of the books of the Old Testament, chapter 18, verse 7, it says that only priests can go in there. That Anyone else who tries won't live. So you have this supposed prophet telling Nehemiah to violate God's word and seeking to set him up to ruin him before the people and the king. A prophet. Like, religious dude. Guy who should be all for his people. The second issue comes at the end of the passage in verses 17 to 19 with false family. Look there, because we're told... Here, that some of the nobles of Judah, in other words, Jews, okay, these are, these are not foreign nobles, these are the nobles of Judah, these are Jews, that they had a relationship with Tobiah, who's one of the dudes trying to, trying to keep this city from being restored, from being rebuilt. In fact, we're told that they are bound by oath to him, which, is, which means um, one of two things. Either they had, they had marriage bonds in their family, right? You know how nobles do that? We all... Took British history, we all know that's, that's a mess. So they, they do that and they intermarry and all this stuff to try and meld peoples together, meld families together to make relationships that are strong. Or it's something financial. Could be either one, could be both. And we are told, that, we are told there that information is going back and forth between the nobles of Judah and Tobiah. So we're finally told where the leak is, right? There, there's, there's been this information flow, which isn't... Look, they didn't have email. They didn't even have phones. They couldn't be texting each other like, the walls are at 50%. Like, like, someone had to be writing information and sending it via courier to go get to where these people are. So how did they get them? Apparently, the nobles were sending it. And these people are trying to get Nehemiah to think well of Tobiah. They're like, look, he's a good dude. He's always done good things for me. He's done great stuff for us. He's always been good. And they're saying this all the while Tobiah is sending letters to Nehemiah to make him afraid. Which is this wonderful way to end that passage. Which begs the question, where is their loyalty? Tobiah, here's Tobiah who's seeking the downfall of the city in which they dwell. But they seem more loyal to him than to the guy who's trying to help them. Or to the God who has called him to do so. Where, where does their loyalty lie? 
In both of the, these accounts, you have opposition to what Nehemiah is trying to accomplish. In other words, you have opposition to the renewal of a community coming from within the community itself. Like we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about, about opposition that comes from the outside, and that seems normal, right? I mean, we expect opposition from out there, but opposition from in here? Well, why would that happen? See, in both cases, these folks look like they're part of the community. You've got the religious folks on one side, prophets and prophetesses, right? He talks about them. And then you have the nobles on the other side, all, all part of the community, right? They, they look like it, but their loyalty isn't to God and his people. Their loyalty is to themselves. The prophets seem to be willing to make up false messages from God for profit, and, and the nobles uh, are willing to give, in, give up information to someone who is bent on their destruction in the destruction of the city. So why does this matter? Here's why. This passage is a hinge passage for us in this book. Okay? If you've been reading from the beginning, you know that as, as we've gone along, everything up to this point has all been about structures and systems and walls and all these different things. And even last week, we were talking about uh, systemic poverty and the ways in which Nehemiah addresses injustice in the city. And all these are systems issues. And all of a sudden, from, right from the next chapter on, what we're going to be looking at is not systems, but people. And so this is a hinge The two needs that we were made aware of at the beginning of this book are the same needs that you and I have. Broken people and broken systems. Nehemiah has repaired the systems, or at least the symbol of them. The wall is up. Governance can happen. Security can happen. Economy can happen. But the people, the people are a mess. And so the rest of this book will speak to working towards the renewal of the people. Here, though, the important thing for us to see that even though the wall is up, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough to have fixed systems. The people are still a mess. And that brings us to a clear need, first looking at the failure of structures, okay? Here's the whole point of what I've tried to point out about this passage. Great systems don't fix people. Great systems don't fix people. This is true in a plethora of ways, but it's illustrated beautifully for us here. The wall is fixed. Security is restored. Governance can begin. Economy can restart. But people are still living as if those structures didn't exist. They're still living as if we, we have to... We have to cave to the powers that be because we're not safe. We have, to, we have to provide for ourselves by selling God's word because how else am I going to be able to make a li- Like they're, they're living as if those systems don't exist. You see, structures could fix us if our problem was that we simply don't have good enough systems. If our institutions weren't strong enough, if we didn't have the right rules and regulations, and look, we're coming up on election time, right? We're coming up into a, the, the, in, in just a couple of weeks, we're about to hit hardcore national election season where everyone is going to tell us if we just get the right rules, if we just get the right regulations, if we just get the right person in place, the promised land is in front of us. 
But the Bible tells us that our problem is much deeper than that. In fact, it tells us the reason why our structures are messed up in the first place. It's because we're messed up. Our systems are jacked because you and I are jacked and we can't fix it by just making the systems better. See, the Bible says that you and I were made for God, that we were made for this relationship with Him characterized by a loving dependence. But in time, we became convinced of a lie. Maybe this sounds familiar to you. The the lie is simply this. God's not for you. He's not out for your good. He doesn't really love you. Maybe He's not even there. He's certainly not trying to seek your good. He's, He's trying to use you. He's holding you back. Sound familiar? We became convinced that we not only could be, but needed to be independent of him. And so believing that lie, we turned from him, we betrayed him. And when we did that, several things happened. Okay? When humanity turned away and betrayed God, what the Bible calls sin, okay? it just means a relational betrayal, a few things happened. First, we became guilty before God. And if, if, uh, if that's hard for you, you know this, right? You can't betray a person without incurring guilt. And we betrayed the ultimate person. Second, because it was a relationship, when you betray someone, you become alienated from them, right? We became alienated from God, and you know this as well. When you betray a person, relationship is broken, and that relationship is broken until some kind of reckoning happens. Some kind of reckoning has got to happen for that relationship to go back to where it was. But lastly, not only did we become guilty, not only did we become alienated, but we also became fundamentally broken. You see, in the beginning, humanity needed to be convinced of the lie. God doesn't love you. God's not for you. God's trying to use you. But now, man, we are born with that as our presupposition. That is the lens through which we see the entire world. By nature, we are bent away from God. And it is that last part that I want to expand upon. Because you see, the Bible describes that that being bent by nature away from God, it describes it using strong words. Words like dead. That we're dead. The Apostle Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins by nature. Dead. And friends, this is why structures and systems can't help. When's the last time you read a rule that could raise dead people? When's the last time you went and found a social system so well set up that when someone drops dead, it's like, boop, they're back up. Like, man, that was great. Let's get that law passed again. At best, at best, what systems and structures do is they prop up dead people. Like weekend at Bernie's. You know, it's like hanging out and we're having a good party and you don't know, Google it later, okay? Um, But here's the thing. You and I don't need propping up. We need raising up. We don't need new rules. We need new life. And listen, this may be surprising uh, to some of you here, especially if Christianity is new. Christians aren't Christians because they keep a certain set of rules or do a certain type of practice. Those things happen. Those things come. But they're not what makes you a Christian. We don't need props. We don't need rules. We need a rescuer. And this is why Jesus came. Look, the difference between Christianity and every other religion of the world, and, and look, look, 
That was my major in college. Like, I studied those things. And so I'm, I'm telling you from, from experience, whether, whether we're talking about Buddhism or Islam or whatever, they say this. Here's, what, here's the problem that you have. Everyone knows their problem. We, don't, we, we all have the same. We all start with a problem, right? Every worldview does. Here, here's, what, here's your problem, and here's what you need to do to make it right. But that is not what Christianity says. Christianity says, here is your problem. It's way bigger than you ever thought. It's so big you can't fix it. But good news, here's what God did in Jesus to fix it for you. Because we couldn't live dependently on God following his law, Jesus lived it perfectly. Because we were guilty, Jesus bore the weight of our offense, the wrath of God on the cross in our place And because we were dead in our trespasses, Jesus makes us alive by the Spirit. Listen to me. If if you've been a Christian a long time, I need you to hear this. God did not come and knock on the door of your heart. He kicked the door down, said, live. And you responded in faith. We like structural answers because they are definable, they are measurable, and they are controllable. But they cannot give life. Only Jesus can. So let me ask you a question. As we, as we hinge from, in this book from structures into people, let me ask you a question. Do you know him? Don't check out on that. I need you to wrestle with this. I don't care if you've been a founding member of this church or you just came this weekend. You're like, what is this place? I need you to hear this. Some of us here don't know him. We know church. We've been going for a long time. We've got perfect attendance in Sunday school. We've got those gold stars every week. We've been to every VBS. We've been, we've been active in this and in that. We know morality. We know performance. In other words, we know structures and systems, but we don't know Christ. We don't have life. We have never looked at him and seen at the same time that we are more broken and flawed than we could have ever imagined and more loved and cared for than we ever dreamed. Friends, if you put your faith in systems, in your structures, in your rules, they will fail you and you will fail them. But if you place your faith in Jesus, stop pretending you've got to clean yourself up first because you can't. I can't. We can't. But if you place your faith in Jesus, just accept that you are a sinner in need of grace. And then cling to Jesus as that grace. He will never fail you. And you will have life. So that's the failure of structures. Now, let's talk about the failure to evaluate. Because there's another issue here that we need to wrestle with that is prevalent in the church today. This false prophet... This false prophet that comes or asks Nehemiah to come to him, he is recognized by Nehemiah by his inconsistency with God's word, right? The Jews, the nobles, could not evaluate Tobiah correctly because they simply looked at some good deeds and thought that's where his loyalty was. If you're a Christian here this morning, and if you're not, just, just you can listen in, okay? We're about to have a family discussion. You can listen in, though. It, it, If you're a Christian here this morning, how do you make evaluations in your life? Because you see, Shemaiah assumed that Nehemiah would make an evaluation based on his position. He's the prophet. 
right? The nobles were doing it based on relationships. So, so Shemaiah's thinking, he's going to think, Nehemiah's going to think he's a prophet. He's got to be right. He's the religious professional. And the, and the Jews are thinking, like, he's been good to us. I know him. He must be good. What he says must be true. But Nehemiah placed his evaluation squarely on God's word. Again, this is an issue because we tend to trust in structures. Some dude has the the title of pastor in front of his name, or has a megachurch, or has a degree in New Testament, and, and we think everything he says is good, must be right. I need you to hear me very clearly. Okay? Check in. If you checked out, check in. I need you to hear me clearly. I do not want anyone, anyone in this place taking what I have to say blindly. If you've been doing that, it's time to repent. Do not take what I have to say blindly. We have elders for a reason. One of those is to guard the doctrine of this church. But at the same time, if something hits you funny, if you're listening to me, something just hits you funny, I don't don't want you to just accept it blindly. But what I would ask is that we go together to the standard that we have to evaluate all things. We go to the Bible. Okay, Let's, let's go to it together. Don't take my word for it on the stuff you hear. Go to the word. Study the word. And, and you're probably thinking, like, Rick, I'm just going leave, to leave that to, to you or the, to those who have degrees. But no, listen. Listen. Here in this church and in our tradition, we believe these two things that really help us here. Okay? And here they are. The, one of them is called the perspicuity of Scripture, and the other is Scripture's internal consistency. Okay? That first is a, is a big word that all it really means is that the Scripture, in, in, not in all places, is equally clear, right? Because you and I read the Bible. We know. If, you, if you've read the Bible, you're like, I don't get it. You know what? So do I. The elders, we have a Bible study on uh, Wednesday mornings, and um, <laughs> just a couple, we've been going through the book of Zechariah. Okay? Some of you are like, I don't even know where that is. That's okay, just listen. Okay, so we've been going through the book of Zechariah, and we got to this one part, and it's talking about this vision of horses, and then a woman in a basket, and he puts the lid back on the basket, and all of us are like, I don't know. What do you got? are like, I don't know. What do you got? I don't know. You know. Like, obviously, it's not clear equally in every place, but everything that is needed for you, for your salvation, is made clear in some place or another. In other words, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, it is pretty clear that he's saying that he is the only way to be reconciled to God. Not through Buddha or Muhammad, right? I mean, that's pretty clear. He's saying it. Whether you agree with it or not, that's another issue, but he's, it's very clear. That's what he's saying. So that's perspicuity. By internal consistency, what we mean is that because God is the ultimate author of Scripture, that the whole thing agrees with itself. It agrees with itself. It doesn't contradict itself. Now, that isn't to say that we understand it all, have all those complexities figured out, but just that it doesn't contradict. And so that means if what I say up here doesn't square with the gospel, listen to me, if what I say from behind this, well, it's supposed to be a pulpit, but, you know, a music stand, if, if what I say from up here doesn't square with the gospel, you had better reject it. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care if you think I'm the coolest dude ever, and I know you don't, but if, if you did, reject it. If what some preacher here, uh, you hear on YouTube or on their podcast tells you something that leaves out the finished work of Jesus Christ, reject it. It doesn't square with God's word. 
Someone tells you that your salvation or even your spiritual life is up to you, your work, your effort, the amount of your faith, you reject it because it does not square with God's word. That dude is a false prophet. And if you were standing here, I'd say the same thing to him. Now let me conclude. Brother's getting all fiery. You're Presbyterian. You're not supposed to raise your voice. I know, I know. Forgive me. Elders will get me later. Like, Rick, square up, bro. Like, all right, I got it. All right. It made for good comedy, right, when, when Andrew McCarthy and Jonathan Silverman, in, in, I guess it was in the 90s when that movie came out, at Weekend at Bernie's, that they, that they carted around a recently dead dude, propped him up, and pretended like he was alive while partying at his house for the weekend. That made for good comedy, right? But even those characters would never have thought, even the characters in the movie, right, not, not just the actors, the actual characters would have never thought that propping him up made him alive. The humor was found in the fact that the dude was dead, like, bro was dead and no one knew it but the two guys, right? That was the comedy. I didn't say it was good comedy. I just said it was the comedy. Even the best systems are simply helps. Necessary helps. Very necessary helps. But helps. Dead people must be made alive. Thankfully, Jesus came to do just that. So that those people could then go and build structures that can help the world flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, we come uh, to the end of this just recognizing the fact that many of us in this room have just been propping ourselves up with systems. But a vibrant walk with Jesus is foreign to us, is alien to us. We don't even know what that means. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that That, Lord, we would not find that to be shameful if we recognize it, but see it as grace. Because if we recognize that, even right now, if we recognize that, it is because you are working, removing the scales from our eyes. So, Lord, I pray that right now, as you remove those scales, that you would give faith as a gift to those who would call on you. Lord, would you, would you do that? For the rest of us, help us to, put, uh, to, to walk this balance between knowing that, that both we need renewal and our systems need renewal. And, and Lord, would you work in Holy Cross to make us a place that we hold that complexity in glorious tension, trusting that you are bigger than it. Father, would you, would you work in this church to create a community that, that is focused on seeing people renewed and then moving out to see our city renewed as well. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.